Hey, you, uh, Mark Stenberg, everybody. One of the original uh, founders of the House of Mercy, and uh, when we first invited James here, um, yeah, 18 years ago, right? Wow, 18 years. I think it was. Um, I think it was maybe Debbie. Um, bless her heart. She's not. She's in Portugal. Anyway, I think she discovered the uh, writings of James first, and um, kind of got really excited about it. And um, I don't know when she's recommends something, you take it seriously because she's a amazing writer and theologian. But I found, uh, as we read uh, James's work, um, and uh, it, to me it, it gave a whole new vocabulary uh, to my understanding of the faith, uh, sin, grace, redemption, um, violence, uh, the tragic, uh, but also this profound hope, uh, this Jesus Christ who raises the dead. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's really been an honor to have James around here now and then. Plus, he's just a fabulous communicator, the way he tells a story and uh, the uh, profound adventures he's had in his life. Uh, uh, really uh, an honor to have you back, James. Yeah. And uh, so this is the fourth time that we've been lucky enough to have uh, James with us. The last time he was here, um, Every time he comes here, we ask him to do something a little bit crazy. The first time when we got a hold of him 18 years ago, we wrote and asked him if he would come and be our theologian in residence. And uh, he said yes, <laughs> for substitution. And he was here for, I think, two months with us, almost, yeah. And uh, preached for us and taught class and retreat. It was, it really did change the community. And uh, yeah. Part of really that was a foundational experience for us at the House of Mercy here. So the last time he came, we asked him, we always referred to him kind of tongue-in-cheek as the patron saint of House of Mercy. So last time he was here, we asked him if we could saint him. And being a Catholic priest, he said no. <laughs> uh, but we, we said, how about if we bootleg saint you? You know, a little bit off, you know, a little bit uh, nefarious, you know, a bootleg saint. To which he gracefully agreed. And uh, this time, we have, the House of Mercy Mint has struck these commemorative saints medals of uh, uh, James on the front, the peace star on the back, and then the Latin motto for uh, Saint Allison, uh, Mors Inoxia Facta Est, which is something I kind of cobbled together off Google Translate, but roughly means um, death has been made non-toxic, um, which is beautiful, beautiful. Um, so, you know, these in the back, they're for sale. You can get yourself one. Also, you might notice there's cards in the pews um, with a QR code, a suggested donation of $25 uh, for coming in here. And this goes, yeah, there it is right there. And uh, the, uh, the money goes to, you know, pay St. James. It is suggested, though, um, you can give any amount or throw some dollars in, in the kitty in the back there. Well, thank you for coming. Uh, once again, uh, here is James Allison, our patron saint. Thank you. And I'd, I'd just like to say thank you and a very heartfelt thank you to both, to both of you who've just spoken, Mark and, and Russell here. Um, and what a joy it is to be back at this place, but not only at this place, at this church, because it was in two different places as well. 
Um, but I would have thought that you'd heard everything I ever had to say and uh, didn't really think that there would ever, you would ever really want or need anything more from me. <laughs> so it's a rather amazing to me that you still do. And, uh, and I'm, I cannot tell you how touched I am and pleased by, uh, by that. So thank you very much indeed. Last time I was here, and I can't remember exactly which year it was, um, one of the things, I, 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 while I was talking, I can remember that it must have been fairly early in the reign of your former president. Uh, that, I think that, yeah, so it must have been somewhere between 2017 and then and COVID, which of course then stopped, <laughs> uh, stopped everything. And I remember hinting at some of the things that I've been trying to sit with since then, and which I think fit into a talk whose title is called Spiritual Practice in the Time of Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's kind of come to the surface, floated like the flotsam and jetsam of, of Trumpiana to the surface uh, as the, the storm passes by, we, we piously hope. But, um, before then, it was, it was Trump, and I, I can remember, as you know, I remember that all the discussion was, well, why did all these people vote for him? And uh, the questions were usually, um, it was economists who gave answers, well, it was this kind of difference and this kind of difference. And they hadn't really caught on to how big a factor race was and the sense of the lost, the myth of lost goodness that was a lost white goodness and was a kind of a fairy tale, fairy tale story of your origins uh, in which the fruits of the North Atlantic slave trade were supposed to be kept very much under the wraps and out of the history books and not being elected as president of the Republic, which had happened just before. <laughs> um, and the very fact of having had a black president was kind of a not, not particularly because of anything he did, he said, but merely the fact was itself the undoing of a certain kind of sacred myth about uh, who y'all were. And of course, we were having on our side of the Atlantic a very similar uh, problem with our national myth um, actually, unfortunately, uh, being brought to the fore a completely fake account of who we are, of who we are and were brought to the fore in a, I'm afraid ways which have lasted much longer because whereas you can undo a president every four years it'll be at least 20 or 30 years before they can undo brexit even though the the forces powering both were very much the same but what this has led me to try and think about since that time and going, going forward is the question of shame. Because what I've picked up is that so much of the flight from truth-telling and into myth is shame not dealt with. And I'd like to give a little account of how that might be. There was, there was a meeting fairly on fairly early on in the Trump period um, when some studious people 
came together. They deliberately chose to visit, I think, bring some East Coast types uh, and visit a community that had voted entirely for Trump, a purely red uh, community. I think it was actually in the, in the hinterland of Minnesota. I'm not entirely sure. Um, and the idea was to see whether there were such huge differences of opinion on most things. And what they discovered was that, curiously, the so-called red Americans were neither more homophobic, nor more racist, nor more crazy and defiant of science <laughs> than anybody else. But what they were was very shy of being triggered into feeling ashamed of themselves by people who seem to have got it all sorted out right. In other words, people who turned up having right-on attitudes <laughs> triggered them into defensive reactions against all that sort of thing. So the beginnings of what was now called, is what now called the war against woke, <laughs> seems to go back to that. But please notice, it's a shame reaction. It's a feeling of like, yeah, we know this stuff is true, but hey, you're making us feel bad about not swimming with it as easily as you do. <laughs> if, that makes, uh, if that makes sense, the shame reaction. Now, what that led me to try and start thinking about is quite how bad a job official Christianity in both its Protestant and its Catholic forms in our respective countries has done in dealing with the issue of shame. So before going along, I'd like just to give you the basic account of Christianity which shows where a shame-producing Christianity comes from and what a non-shame-producing Christianity might look like. So that we can then move into the question of, well, what might be the practices <laughs> that enable us to move on in this, in this sphere? And please forgive me if all this is completely obvious uh, to you, as it may, well might be. Uh, but let me just trot through this in the hopes that something at least will be of, of value. I mean, you know an old-fashioned way of talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection fits into what I would call a sacrificial model. One might call it the Aztec model of salvation. And in the Aztec model of salvation, um, there is God who has created the world, and it was good. And then somehow or other, Adam and Eve and an apple and a serpent and something or other got screwed up. And we don't quite know why an apple and a serpent should make that much difference, but humanity fell and became very bad. And thereafter, we're all terribly sinful. And so God, being infinitely good and infinitely just, was very angry. So angry that he felt very inclined to smite everybody, smiting being the kind of thing that, that God does, at least in that, <laughs> in that account. Um, 
But then, luckily, I mean, he'd kind of forgotten that he had a son called Jesus who was in the back room doing something else. But then Jesus must have come forward and said, oh, I see you're about to do a whole lot of smiting. And he said, and he said yeah, well, can't you see? I mean, they've dissed me big time. Um, and furthermore, you know, I'm having a terrible battle holding back my just uh, wrath from them because although I'm supposed to be merciful, my mercy keeps on wanting to reach out, but my just wrath just can't hold it back. Um, because really, they've dissed my, on, my infinite honor, and it's an infinite diss. I mean, you know, one can put up with minor disses, like Chris Rock getting slapped in the Oscars, but an infinite diss is kind of too much. So um, Jesus said, hmm, curious problem, but I can solve it because I'm God. I can pay infinite prices to you, who clearly have a little bit of self-control problem in your old age, um, and um, I can become a human, and therefore it will be a human who pays an infinite uh, solution, an infinite price, and thus your wrath and your, all, all of those stuff, you can calm down for a bit. Um, so God thinks about it for a bit and says, Okay, we'll go for it, but, because there's always a but, that'll only work for the people who believe in you and get covered by your blood. Okay, I'm going to do that, and then there are going to be people who believe in you that cover in your blood. That's fine, we'll, we'll create an eye in the hurricane for that. There'll be an eye in the center of the hurricane where everyone will be safe and cozy and all will be good, but meanwhile I'll carry on smiting all the others who were not in there, okay, because they didn't get in on the, on the show, right? So Jesus goes and does it, and he manages to get himself paid as a price, and he pays it, and therefore the people who agree to be covered over are saved, and everybody else who doesn't join in is, uh, is in deep doo-doo, as I believe one of your other former presidents uh, uh, said. <laughs> um, now, you know, and I know this is a, a nonsense account, never, even if elements of it are extremely present in one or other form of explanation of Christianity. And the trouble with it, or one of the troubles with it, uh, is that it's very difficult to see what kind of loving of anybody it is if the only thing that you're interested in doing is paying the price so as to cover over their sins. I mean, think of me as a British colonial officer, a role I play really quite well with a very slight shift of accent. And, um, you know, I've been sent on a dangerous mission amongst the heathen and they're a pretty disreputable lot and they get up to all sorts of very strange things. I don't really like them. Awful. No, no, not very good. Don't really like them very much. But I've been told that I've got to die for them out of love. So I'll say, okay, that's fine. I'll love them enough to die for them. I'll pay the price. I don't like them very much. Um, but uh, that doesn't really matter. The only important thing is that I should love, a, love, for, love them and then therefore die and thus pay the price. And so I'll do that. And Nasty people though they are, I'll have done my bit, you know. Someone had to do it. So why not me? I'll be the heroic one. Okay. In other words, you have a version of Jesus 
who loves without liking? Because the solution to the problem <laughs> is paying a price. And the only thing that matters in that image is Jesus' death as paying the price. Well, how about looking at this the other way around, which is the way around that I've been trying to explore all these years, and see that, yes, there is an angry divinity in the equation. And the angry divinity is actually us. It's our need for having our desire for vengeance assuaged that is the real problem. God has no part of it at all. There is no need, there's no vengeance in God, there's no need to have his wrath assuaged. That is particularly our problem. We typically create our unity over against some other, which we convince ourselves is the enemy of everything that is good and righteous and just and American. Currently drag queens, I understand, are high on the list. Uh, not guns, but drag queens. Yes, you've got it. <laughs> but whatever it is, because every culture has their equivalent. The one who is not us, thanks to whom we know who we are. So the evil, the wicked, the impure, whatever the terminology is. And so we get rid of them, and for a bit we're all together, and we're the good guys. We got it right. We clearly, the very fact that we're now at peace and in unity shows that we got the right bastard because uh, otherwise we wouldn't be at peace and unity. The fact that actually all it means is that we've self-deluded ourselves <laughs> into thinking that they did something when in fact it's we who did something to them doesn't occur to us because of course we're right. But if that is the picture then we begin to get a quite different understanding of what God is doing in Jesus. Because God is gradually coming into the world in such a way that little by little the voice of the thrown out one starts to get heard. And the first traces of this are in the Hebrew Scriptures where strangely ancient myths get retold in such a way that rather than the gods turning up and patting Romulus on the back for having killed his brother Ramus and said, as a good British colonial god would have said, splendid, splendid, you know, someone had to do it, nasty business, no, no one really likes killing their brother, but somebody had to found the city, don't you get it? Somebody had to found the city, so, so splendid, yes. Not a murder, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll call it, let's call it a sacrifice, you know, that makes it sound so much better. Everyone's happy to have a sacrifice. Then we can have little, little celebratory sacrifices every year to remember you're sacrificing your brother and thus founding the cities. The gods pat Romulus on the back and assure the founding of culture. Whereas the biblical version has exactly the same thing. A couple of indistinguishable brothers, one of whom kills the other out of envy, where it actually says it's out of envy. And then... God says to him, where is your brother? His blood cries to me from the ground. Meaning, you may want to call this a sacrifice. 
I'm calling it murder. And because of this, I'm going to have to protect you from vengeance for you to be able to form a city, for you to be able to found culture, because that's what Cain goes on to do. He goes on to found culture. And God puts a mark on him. The mark is not a mark of accusation. The mark of Cain was a protective mark so that nobody would take vengeance on him. And in fact, it doesn't work for very long because if you remember, the next chapters of the book of Genesis are all about how vengeance spirals, spirals out of control <laughs> until finally they're killing for every seven of mine that you kill, I kill 70 times seven of yours. You remember that? Until finally the whole thing gets so catastrophic that God has to intervene with the flood and must start all over again. Then he invented the rainbow and gay people and everything became wonderful. <laughs> now, um, but you, you, understand, you understand the point. The point is that in the Hebrew scriptures you're beginning to get the breakthrough of the one whose voice cannot normally be heard within a society of the righteous. Within a society of the righteous, the voice cannot, that cannot be heard is the voice of the one who they have thrown out in their righteousness. <laughs> and so you get this God puncturing the sense of goodness of God's people throughout the Hebrew Scriptures from the place of the cast out one. Again, very beautifully brought out in the Joseph story, which is how the cast out one reconciles the brothers through forgiveness. Incidentally, that Joseph story is a beautiful undoing of the Oedipus myth. Do you remember that in the Oedipus myth, somebody turns up to a pagan town, they're having a little crisis, nicely depicted as a, as a, a plague or, a, or some sort of pandemic of some sort, which means that they're all at each other's throats. And he turns up and he marries the richest widow in town. He's also got a slight limp and he marries the richest widow in town. And guess what? Before long, the local notables have decided, hmm, it's his fault that there is this plague. So we must get rid of him. And furthermore, he didn't just marry the richest women in town secretly in ways that no one can prove. He's in fact her son. And secretly, the old man that he accidentally killed was his father. So we can make these false accusations against him. And with a bit of luck, we can bully him into admitting that these things were true and then we can drive him out. Do you remember that? The story of Oedipus with parricide and incest as the two accusations <laughs> for which there's no evidence. Even in the, in the Greek myths, there's no evidence. There's a constant argument about whether it actually happened or not in which Oedipus finally agrees to accept the accusation, even though there's no evidence. Because in a totalitarian system, the victim is always supposed to agree with the unanimity of the expellers and their righteousness before being thrown out. But in the Joseph story, curiously, Joseph gets thrown out. First of all, it's shown to be a matter of rivalry. He produces a, he's a bit of a show-off and 
has dreams, and his brothers get cross, and his, his father and mother get cross as well. In fact, they all go into rivalry with him. So he then gets thrown out by his brothers, one of whom kindly substitutes an animal, dipping his coat of many colors into a goat's blood. Then uh, he gets sent, sent off by Midianites to Egypt. Once in Egypt, he is well employed in the house of Potiphar, remember that? And in the house of Potiphar, um, he's treated very well. Potiphar puts him in charge of absolutely everything. And then Mrs. Potiphar is a bit bored uh, because Hubby's got a, a, a long, tedious day job in the running things for Pharaoh. And basically the pool boy is a bit of a hunk. Um, <laughs> so she makes a play for the pool boy. And uh, um, he says, no, far be it from me. I mean, uh, Potiphar has been a father to me. He has put everything into my hands. He has withheld nothing from me. Far be it from me to take his wife as my own. In other words, he notoriously doesn't have an Oedipus complex. <laughs> he realizes that Potiphar is his father, but he does not therefore automatically think, I must fulfill my Oedipus complex by screwing my mother. He says, no, that's just not true at all. I, uh, but she gets angry about this, uh, doesn't like being dissed by the pool boy, so he gets uh, accused of having made a pass at her and gets sent to prison. But the story is quite clear, it was a false accusation. The accusation of incest was a false accusation. And then uh, later on, when he's managed to get all his brothers uh, back, uh, when they all come to Egypt, uh, finally, uh, when one of the things that happens is that he tries to get, um, first of all, his brothers to bring his youngest brother, Benjamin, back with him. And his brothers will say, no, 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 we can't do that, no, because because our father will go down to his, he'll, he'll die, basically, at the thought of losing his son. He already lost one son. And if we, Benjamin is basically the apple of his eye, and if he loses him, I mean, oh, oh, you have no idea what a drama queen he is. Um, and incidentally, in the, in the Joseph story, if you look at the role played by Jacob, who is Israel, the founder of the people, he's a complete drama queen. Literally, whenever anything happens, he goes, oh, woe is me. He's entirely self-important. Um, <laughs> It's true, you look it up. It's in the Bible, so it must be true. <laughs> so, um, there's several opportunities for Joseph to have his father killed. But in fact, he brings him closer and closer, does a trick with Benjamin, which then causes them to say, oh, now, now our father will die, we'll go down to his death in, in rage and shame because of this. But eventually, that's what provokes Judah, one of the brothers, into making one of the most beautiful speeches in the whole of the Bible, which is basically, you know, we've been here before. <laughs> we did this to one of our brothers, and we're not gonna do it again. We learned our lesson. So you take me and let the kiddo go, otherwise you'll bring down the father, to, into, you'll kill the father. At which point, Joseph, collapses in tears and the whole thing comes to a, the beginnings of a happy ending because finally he's seen that they have been forgiven because they've recognized what they did. 
they've learned not to do it again. Forgiveness has led them to understanding what had happened. Thereafter, Pharaoh, who is the good dad throughout this story, decides that Joseph needs to be married. And guess who Pharaoh chooses to be the wife of Joseph? I can see you're going to guess for a very long time. <laughs> it's actually, it's the daughter of his high priest, Potiphera. Remember? Potiphar, wife. Potiphera, daughter. Wrong generation, right generation. You see how clearly they understood that they were undoing the tale of the false accusations. And that it is, in a sense, it's ancient myth undone from within. But that's just to show you how the, the Hebrew scriptures begin to make the voice of the thrown out one into the forgiving voice that is able to assemble people. And of course, this comes to its conclusion, as we know, in the Passion, where Jesus, far from paying anything to God, is effectively coming into the midst of us, a rivalrous group, particular circumstances, rivalrous Jews and Romans, <laughs> and saying effectively, yep, this is the kind of thing you do, <laughs> as beautifully pronounced by Caiaphas. Do you not know that it's better for one man to perish, one man to die, than that the nation should perish? You don't get a more beautifully exact summation of the mechanism of making ourselves good and safe over against casting someone out than that. And what is Jesus doing? He's coming into the midst of that and saying, yeah, actually, that is what you do. And I'm occupying this space so as to show you that even as the sort of people who do that, I like you. I'm not doing this so as to rub your face in it. For instance, dying and then rising again so I can stand up with a big stick and going nah, you thought you killed me now I can hit you with a bigger thick which would be a sort of super Nietzschean revenge story <laughs> it is something much much more delicate than that he's saying yep this is what you do and guess what I don't hold it against you for anyone who can see that who God is, is actually fully revealed in me occupying this space. That this is what God's love looks like. None of this will be held against you. On the contrary, you'll be able to start to live as I do. Without fear of being run by death and the place of shame into which we're inclined to put each other. Now, notice I've introduced a subtly different word there than usual. In the version, the first version I give you, the death is simply the paying of the price. In the version I'm telling you, occupying the space of death, or in the epistle to the Hebrew language, tasting death, is occupying it so that it becomes non-toxic for us. 
so that no longer is death a rogue element which runs us in bizarre and unpredictable ways through fear. And associated with death is shame. In the same epistle to the Hebrews, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, thought as nothing of the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And in the various gospel accounts, as you probably know, the word for glory is the inverse of the word for shame. The word for glory simply means a good reputation. Shame is the regard that makes us want to fall into a hole in the ground. <laughs> Whereas glory is the regard that likes you, that welcomes you, that says, yeah, that's my boy, that's my girl. And Jesus says, the one who is not ashamed of me, I will not be ashamed of him <laughs> before the Father. We get constantly brought up the binary between glory, the word Greek word doxa just means reputation, and shame. So, there is something very odd about what Jesus is doing and our tendency to have turned it into uh, a new sacrificial form of being. Because effectively he's saying, I know what you do, I know who you are, I know how quick you are to cover your shame by putting other people into this space so you don't have to be in it yourselves. And sometimes you yourselves will rush into it because it seems less awful. At least you have some identity if you're the bad guy rather than the even worse form of annihilation, which is complete indifference towards you. So I'm aware of how this works, and I'm occupying that space so that no longer will shame run you. On the contrary, knowing yourselves liked, just as the people who do that kind of thing. From that stage onwards, you can begin to become rational. Start to learn how to take responsibility. Why? Because you're not in fight or flight or play dead, as run by shame any longer. You're in a place where your shame is being held tenderly, peacefully. And therefore, it becomes possible for you to learn how to hold each other's shame tenderly and peacefully. You're able to be weak and vulnerable to each other, rather than hermetically powerful and upright. You will be able to have friends with whom you're able to share your vulnerability, and they won't use it against you. It will never become an arm in a battle to see who can get put in the place. Basically, anybody who admits to a weakness can get put in that place. Furthermore, because of this place of shame becoming inhabited tenderly, it means that you can actually start to learn who you are from the eyes of the person who before you were inclined to throw out. Because you begin to discover your sameness, 
with them. And as you discover your sameness with them, so you find yourself becoming a new we. And this is beautifully brought out in the accounts in Acts 10 of the baptism of the Gentiles. And it's specifically brought out in the context of shame, strangely enough. Do you remember that in Acts 10, Peter is on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, when he gets this strange vision of a sail being led, led down with all the beasties that he was not supposed to eat, and a voice which says, sacrifice and eat, sacrifice and eat, sacrifice and eat. And he says, no, Lord, it would never cross my mind to allow such profane and impure things to cross to pass my lips. So he refuses three times, and then the sheet is taken up. And then he's sitting, meditating on this, wondering what on earth it might mean, when suddenly there's a great shout from outside. And the great shout is a sign that St. Luke is a genius. The great shout is actually from Cornelius's messengers who've come to visit. But the great shout is exactly the same verb in Greek as the crowing of the cock. The last time he had made a triple refusal, it's literally the same verb in both cases. Triple refusal, no, I am not like him, shame. And triple refusal, this time, pride, not being like them. <laughs> and the realization that in both cases he was doing the same thing. That he was running away from the place of the victim. He's being given the opportunity to have his shame undone. So that by the time he gets to the house of the Gentiles, He's able to walk in, even though he says, I know I'm not supposed to do this. Because I am meant to protect my goodness over against impure people like you. And he then gives them his, his stump speech about Jesus. And in the middle of that, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the Gentiles. And he and his team of mates who've come with him are completely... Completely astounded. Why? Because they see the same thing coming down upon these impure people that had come down upon them. And that means that it was not a question of Peter from central office being sent to lay down the law so that you can become part of us. It was Peter from central office being sent to learn how he wasn't really from central office. how central office was elsewhere and perfectly capable of functioning <laughs> amongst people who were impure and therefore shameful for people like him. And if the Holy Spirit was able to fall on them, then it's not that you're second-class citizens who are getting accepted into the new unity, it's, oh my God, we're all first-class citizens together in this which means that we're going to be a new sort of we, which is not going to be the same as the I of either of us. <laughs> we're all going to be shaken by what is being brought into being. It's not going to be obvious or easy what that means. And indeed, as you'll see in the next, the next several chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, show just what a fight it was, because, of course, there were a whole lot of people who wanted to keep the sacred structures of goodness going. <laughs> and luckily, it didn't happen. Luckily, 
the space was made available for us shameful Gentiles to be brought into the kingdom of God under exactly the same conditions as the circumcised. The great revolution and it was the undoing of shame that led to that. Okay, let's look about us if we may. That involves a capacity to learn about the inconvenient other at the edge of our vision <laughs> and to undergo the loss of the fake goodness that we have by comparison with whom they are evil. And remember that at that time, what that meant, curiously, was that God had chosen as apostles for the people of Israel a Roman centurion and his servants. <laughs> because the angel had said, send for Peter. The sending had come from God to the Roman centurion and his family. They had then called. And it means that, if you like, the people who we could not possibly have imagined as the good ones who were going to come to call us into newness of life <laughs> are in fact those sent to do so. This is one of the truly wonderful and bizarre things about Christianity, which is that we're constantly having our notions of goodness undone by the arrivals of new dirty bastards whose job it is to undo our self-righteousness. And it's a constant and very difficult exercise. It's called Catholicity with a small c. And I think that we are, at the moment, in the midst of a crisis of Catholicity with a small c. Why so? Because our mainstream churches have failed to deal with the place of shame. Just think how easy it is for fake Christianity to pass itself off as Christianity while not dealing with shame. All it needs is that old version of a price being paid, you being covered over with the blood, and you believing that you have been saved. And guess what happens? Because that's explained as something to do with love and not with liking, it means that you now know yourself, you have the assurance of salvation, that you are righteous through faith. It was Luther's favorite doctrine, though he didn't call it self-righteousness through faith, which of course is what it's become. <laughs> and you have it in an individual version in Protestantism and a collective version in Catholicism. It's exactly the same. Whereas the Catholics think of our church as being self-righteous through faith. <laughs> but basically it means being covered over while not having the reality worked through. But what does that mean if you're declared to be good counterfactually? And you know you are good, which means that you are now the good people on the inside. Will you find yourselves alongside other good people who are on the inside like you, and you very quickly learn who the bad people are. <laughs> and you have a new sacred belonging. And the new sacred belonging is 
us with a constantly altering list of enemies because we have to keep the sacrificial mechanism going because although we claim it's being brought to an end by Jesus having died in fact the passions by which we build each other up in sacrifice have not been dealt with because we are not liked we may have been loved in a formal sense but the affection has not reached to the place where we can be held in our shame thus no longer run by it and so learn to start being together in ways that do not put others to shame instead of which we get countercultural sacrificial Christianity, as I say, either in its individual or its collective form, which turn us into people who are constantly having to reproduce the sacrifice by finding new cultural enemies over against whom to make ourselves good. Complete failure of Catholicity, small c. Complete failure. Because it's a kind of a neurotic necessity to keep repeating the sacrificial mechanism. It's only been sorted out out there. It's not been sorted out here. <laughs> Amidst our own lived violence, where it's actually our shame that is being undone. Our inability to tell truthful stories about ourselves, because that's too painful. There's too much abuse. There's too much intergenerational abuse. There's been too much violence. We can't talk about that. What we can do is join with people who have got a new strong sacred hymn, a battle hymn, and go to war against the enemy du jour, as I say, at the moment drag queens. Um, or even worse, because drag, queen, drag queens are adults who can look after themselves. Trans people who are, of course, suffering the violence, terrible violence, are being assumed to be not part of the order of creation, which is as, as fake uh, and sacrificial a creation of meaning as it's possible to imagine. What are the practices by which we can inhabit this time and help recover a Christianity that is actually helping to detoxify the place of shame. Well, one of the things, it sounds like a stupid thing to say, and I'm sure you all do it already, is read some history books. I've started to read some of the histories of the British Empire. Whoa. What a different story from the one I heard when I was growing up. And I don't mind being about the ones dealing with you lot. We were co-bastards in that one, but we were about to give up slavery. <laughs> so your landowners didn't want that. But the shared problem of North Atlantic slavery is our shared problem. And the way it's run our countries is our shared problem. And the way we are all, without any personal guilt, without any personal guilt. People whose 
self-flattering mythology has been built on the backs of others who typically we do not even describe when we recount our sacred tale, which in your case happens around the 4th of July. Our sacred tale is to do with monarchy and plucky little England fighting alone against the cruel world. But the stories are always victimary. They always involve grievance, overcoming the wicked they. One can always tell once in a myth when people are either heroes or victims, or perhaps changing places, both. Because while you're either a hero or a victim, shame is not being dealt with. It's only when you can start to look each other in the eyes as siblings that shame is being dealt with. And of course, we are, in my country, a long way, a long way from being able to do that. When Cardinal Newman was a young man, so we're talking about the early 19th century in Britain, just after the Napoleonic Wars, he remembered and wrote in his diary about his surprise of seeing French soldiers being marched through the streets of London on their way to, uh, to prison somewhere, and people in the crowd rushing out to lift up their greatcoats to see if they really did have tails. Because so other were the French, the wicked and evil French, that they weren't even really humans like us. And you have no idea how close Britain has come to a similar language about the French and the Europeans. The EUSSR, as it's called, with Germany being responsible for all the evils. And you have your own versions uh, of that. All in order to be able to tell a tale of us as aggrieved goodies. And you had, as we've had, extraordinarily, and at the same time, but, but probably not coincidentally, since these people are much more symptoms than they are causes. We've had perfect vectors of shamelessness in charge. What do I mean by vectors of shamelessness? People whose shame is so deeply buried that they act shamelessly and by acting shamelessly give other people permission <laughs> to have all their shameless passions brought out. Boris did it for us, the great orange one did it for you. And still tries to do it, but I think with ever less success. And it's true, Boris also with ever less success. The inability to cope with shame, driven down so deep, makes them extraordinary vectors by which other people's shamelessness is able to be brought to the surface. But what does that mean? It means that a whole variety of bizarre and as yet unexamined passions, all of which have a terrible intensity, to use the language of Yeats, the poet, and which seem so self-righteous, so sure of their goodness, so detached, from any kind of outside criteria, scientific, rational, etc., etc. So the same people get involved in not getting vaccinated on the grounds that the whole thing is a plot. The inability to be calm enough and together enough 
not to see any new advance as an attack against my group's goodness and therefore to be resisted. It's astounding the way in which those passions, the passions for the recreation of the old sacred, have come to the surface. Now, curiously, that's something that makes it easier, I think, for us as Christians and as preachers and as teachers and as apostles and as missionaries. Because in a world in which a polite contempt about such things reigns, it can never be dealt with. And that at least was the England of my youth. We don't do religion. We're just utterly contemptuous of certain people, but we're terribly courteous to them at the same time. You know what I mean? Must be polite, you know, even if we think that they're really no good at all. And of course, that's much more difficult to deal with <laughs> because contempt, which is the ultimate sign of shame at not being able to deal with the reality, is also a very, very strong lock on having my identity shifted. If I can gang up with other people who are as contemptuous as I of the other, then we can reinforce ourselves without ever subjecting to examination what we're doing, which was how the governing class of my country managed to fool themselves out of the European <laughs> deep, hidden contempt, covered over with courtesy. Whereas, curiously, your Marjorie Taylor Greens, I think, are just slightly saner than our Nadine Dorises. We have a politician called Nadine Doris. She's a, let's say, I think the term is an exotic literature writer. She's a member of the House of Commons, and she shortly will be made a peer, thanks to Boris Johnson. Um, the press knows her as, oh, she's, she's called Nadine Doris. And she's a bit like your Judge Deneen on Fox. She tends to appear in public about six sheets to the wind, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> it's never quite clear how many she's had before she, before she comes on stage. But anyhow, so she's known in the press as Mad Nads. And of course, you'll be glad to hear that she has a group of supporters who all shout, Go Nads! That's, that, that's, that. <laughs> that's that. But curiously, the sheer crudity and absurdity of the kind of nonsense and the hateful nonsense that is at least being openly shared is a sign that the patterns of desire are quite close to the surface. So apart from reading history and beginning to be able to say, what really is our history? Can we, can we tell a non-mythological account of how we came to be who we are? Apart from saying that, there's a question then, in that case, given that these people who need to distance themselves from us so much are basically the same as us, how do we not shame them? Of course, we can't do that if we're pretending to be superior to them, which means that we're not dealing with our shame. And you know as well as I do that uh, you know, there is this thing called woke. And what is 
woke. Woke is usually a term badly used to accuse other people of being empathetic. <laughs> if you're empathetic with any form of human uh, uh, weakness or lack of privilege or oppression, then somehow or other you are woke. But there is the reverse of that, which is people who once they have got a bit of the new insight into other people's oppression, even their own group's oppression, then weaponize it in a way that is no less self-righteous than the people whose self-righteousness demands that they refuse any suggestion that they might not have got it right, which of course is the ultimate sign of being run by shame. There could not be no greater form of shame hiding than the battle against CRT. Because of course it's not a battle against CRT, it's a battle against anyone making you ashamed. <laughs> and they quite literally say that in Florida. We don't want any of our white students to be made uncomfortable. No one's in the business of trying to want to make people uncomfortable. But we are in the business of trying to learn how we came to be who we are so that we can be responsible in how we take it, how we take it forward. The problem is how to avoid mutually battling forms of self-righteousness, each of which hide their own shame. Hence, I think, as I say, the slow, not breast-beating, self-flagellating, the slow discovery of the other through history is one of the ways in which we can begin to open ourselves to perceive what's really going on. Of course, it involves learning how to choose good history books, which I can't necessarily guarantee. Actually, I'm not being paid anything for this. There is apparently a very good new book about the church and its relation to slavery by a Jesuit called Chris Kellerman, K-E-L-L-E-R-M-A-N. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I'm told it's very good. It's on my, it's on my reading list. But again, it's trying to, what's the word? Demythologize the flattering stories we tell about ourselves so that we become a little bit more aware of what's going on. And especially aware of the hidden forms of contempt of which we aren't aware. And which we get very annoyed when other people point out to us. Because it is shame. It needn't be. Truth is made available as a process of forgiveness. That's what the reason I started with talking about the difference between the payment and Jesus occupying the space. Truth is not our enemy. Truth is not there to shame us. Truth is making possible our forgiveness. And our forgiveness happens as a breaking of heart as we see what we've been involved in, maybe personally, but certainly, and without anything like so much drama, collectively, historically, generationally, with relation to our own homelands, wherever those are, and we begin to see, oh, we have made ourselves good over against, over against, over against. And that over against leads to what seems like a jolly sounding tribal song, but it always hides shame. <laughs>
let us allow ourselves to be spoken to by the one who has occupied the place of shame so that we may be held tenderly and so enabled to share with each other without riling each other up. I'm sorry that's not a more specific form of practice, but I hope that it is at least a, a useful one. Thank you very much for... Thank you.